Hello and welcome to the Master of Demon Gorge podcast. Today we're talking about Zhou Duanyi. You may have heard of Lu Xun, the famous early 20th century writer, one of the most influential figures in modern Chinese literature. You may have heard of Zhou Enlai, one of the founding fathers of the People's Republic of China and its top diplomat. But did you know they were cousins? Okay, I'm not actually sure how close they really were on the family tree. They were both from the Zhou clan of the city of Shaoxing in the province of Zhejiang. Lu Xun was a pen name. His real name was Zhou Shuren. And they were documented as having common ancestry. Today I want to tell you about the story of their common progenitor, a famous figure in the history of Chinese thought in his own right. Zhou Duanyi was born in 1017 AD during the Northern Song Dynasty into a family of the Mandarin class. His father, who was a county magistrate, died when Zhou Duanyi was 13. He and his mother went to live with his maternal uncle. And his uncle was a top imperial scholar. The uncle saw a great deal of potential in the teenager. At this time during the Song Dynasty, although the civil service exam was, of course, the standard path for educated men to seek office, there was also an alternative nepotistic path. Officials at court were each allowed to recommend one younger member of their family for a junior post. When Zhou Duanyi was 19, his uncle decided to use this allotment on him, making him a secretary to another official. Despite the nepotistic way in which he entered public service, Zhou Duanyi soon demonstrated his abilities. In 1040, he was made secretary of a county magistrate. In imperial China, a county magistrate served as the local judge, as well as the administrator. So, at this time, a difficult court case that had troubled the magistrate arrived at Zhou Duanyi's desk. Functioning as the court clerk, Zhou Duanyi quickly figured out the facts and the law and arrived at an equitable judgment for the magistrate to render. After this display of ability, Zhou Duanyi's reputation began to grow. The next notable event in Zhou Duanyi's career also saw him functioning as a lawyer. In 1044, the Board of Punishment assigned him to join an army command to serve as what today might be called a JAG officer, Judge Advocate General, a military lawyer. In this position, he worked under an infamously cruel officer named Wang Kui. There was a soldier at this time who had broken military law, and Wang Kui wanted to execute him. But Zhou Duanyi pointed out that the Song legal code did not call for the death penalty under the circumstances. Wang Kui insisted, 
and Zhou Dunyi threatened to quit, saying that he didn't become an official of the empire just to kill people when his boss asked him to. Won over by the strength of his arguments, Wang Kui relented. Zhou Dunyi was then made a county magistrate. He gave himself the task of promoting education in the county, using his spare time to set up a school. At the same time, a judge on the Song equivalent of the Supreme Court, named Cheng Xiang, befriended him, and seeing that Zhou Duanyi was a man of remarkable learning, sent his two sons to study under him. These boys would grow up to be known as the two Chengs, great scholars themselves. His reputation as a scholar and an official continued to grow through the 1040s and 1050s, so that in 1054, upon the recommendation of other mandarins, Zhou Duanyi was promoted to become a Supreme Court justice himself. Citizens cheered his promotion, congratulating each other that a wise and upright judge would now oversee their lawsuits and bring them justice. During these years, he also befriended the major figure Wang Anshi. Wang Anshi was a great scholar and a top minister in the Song court. We can do an episode focused on Wang Anshi. But in sum, as a scholar and writer, he would end up counted among the eight great scholars of the Tang and Song dynasties. And as a minister, he was the leading figure during the Northern Song political reform movement, proposing a series of sweeping reforms. Although these reforms would in turn receive fierce opposition from conservative figures, and Song politics became bitterly divided along partisan lines, not unlike today's Republicans and Democrats in U.S. politics. In 1061, Zhou Duanyi became an imperial scholar. That same year, while playing tourist with a friend on Mount Lu, Zhou Duanyi found a spot he particularly liked. He decided to build a school there. And in light of where this was, he took the artistic name Mr. Lianxi, Mr. Waterfall Creek. It was the name of a river. You may think this is a small detail and wonder why I'm telling you about it. Well, in Chinese literary tradition, taking on an artistic name was not a small matter. Major writers are often known by these artistic names, so that when learning about them, it's important to take note of their artistic names so that you know when different texts are talking about the same person using different names. Li Bai, the great Tang poet, for example, is often known as Mr. Qinglian, Mr. Green Lotus. The great Song poet Su Dongpo was actually named Su Shi, but we often call him Su Dongpo after his artistic name, Mr. Dongpo, Mr. Eastern Slope. I'm also mentioning it because 900 years later, his descendant Zhou Enlai used this name as a pseudonym in correspondence with a figure in Taiwan. The revolutionary statesman 
and calligrapher Yu Youren had followed the Republic of China government to Taiwan in 1949, while communists took over mainland China. At that time, he became separated from his wife, who remained on the mainland. In 1961, an elderly Yu Youren remembered that his wife's 80th birthday was coming up, but he had no way of telling her happy birthday, or even to know if she was still alive. At this time, top PRC leader Zhou Enlai took it upon himself to check in on Yu Youren's wife, and to write to him to let him know that she was okay. The problem was that the PRC and the ROC were officially still locked in a civil war. A letter bearing Zhou Enlai's name would never get delivered through Taiwan's postal service. So, Zhou Enlai signed the letter Mr. Waterfall Creek, referring to his distant ancestor, Zhou Dunyi. Under this pseudonym, the letter made it through the postal service. Yu Ren, being a great scholar himself, instantly recognized the reference and appreciated the information about his wife. In 1063, Zhou Dunyi wrote his most famous literary composition, For the Love of a Lotus. In 1071, Zhou Dunyi moved to a position in the Ministry of Public Works, in which position he traveled throughout Guangdong or Canton in southernmost China. Unfortunately, southernmost China, on the borders of Southeast Asia, was also where malaria was most prevalent. So, Zhou Dunyi caught malaria, and he died in 1073. Okay, so you may be wondering why I've spent all this time talking about a man who was mostly a provincial official and judge. The thing is that he also occupies a major position in the history of Chinese philosophy. So-called Neo-Confucianism, also called Li Xue, or the study of reason, arose during the Northern Song Dynasty. In fact, several branches of Neo-Confucianism arose. One followed Zhou's friend, the reformer, Wang Anshi. One followed the great statesman and historian, Sima Guang. One followed the great statesman, poet, epicure, calligrapher, and general man of good cheers, Su Dongpo. But it was the followers of Zhou Dunyi, as well as the followers of his students, the Cheng brothers, and their uncle, Zhang Zai, who would coalesce into the dominant movement within Neo-Confucianism. Out of this intellectual movement came Zhu Xi in the 12th century, the most influential commentator on the Confucian canon since ancient times. Zhu Xi was like a Chinese Thomas Aquinas, reinterpreting the ancient Christian teachings of Jesus and the apostles for the medieval world in which he lived. In fact, this reinterpretation of Confucianism was arguably an entirely different school of thoughts from ancient Confucianism. Once again, this is sort of analogous to Christianity. 
medieval scholasticism, borrowing heavily from the doctrines of Aristotle, with which Jesus was wholly unfamiliar, was also arguably a different religion from early Christianity. In the case of Zhou Duanyi, we know he borrowed heavily from Taoism in his reinterpretation of Confucianism. Unfortunately, few of Zhou Duanyi's philosophical tracts have actually survived, and his influence is chiefly felt through his students and the next generation of philosophers. But one of his works that has survived discusses the Taiji symbol of Taoism. Zhou Duanyi endorsed the Taoist cosmological view expressed in the symbol of Wuji or Taiji, absolute nothingness gave rise to absolute somethingness, as I might translate. Although honestly, many different translations are possible depending on how you understand the philosophy. The story goes that Zhou Duanyi grew convinced of the Taoist idea when he was 13, when he chanced upon a cave with an aperture on top. When a full moon shone overhead, if you walked through the cave, depending on your position, you could see a very different view of the moon. Somehow these ever-changing views of the moon inspired Zhou Duanyi. Now, I don't like to chase parallels between ancient thoughts and modern science, and I certainly don't want to take this point too far. But this concept, absolute nothingness giving rise to absolute somethingness, does remind me a little bit of the notion in modern quantum theory that the energy available in a total vacuum allowed under quantum principles might have given rise to the Big Bang which then created the universe. Zhou Duanyi then married these Taoist ideas to Confucian ones, the Taizi symbol with the Confucian doctrine of the Ming and its ideas about social hierarchy. Jun Jun Chen Chen Fu Fu Zi Zi. The monarch is a monarch, the minister is a minister, the father is a father, the son is a son, from the Analects of Confucius. This sense of social hierarchy becomes, in Zhou Duanyi's view, naturally derived from a Taoist cosmology. On ethics, Zhou Duanyi argued that the chief moral quality that undergird ethics was sincerity. One reaches moral perfection, according to Zhou Duanyi, when one achieves absolute sincerity. Again, not to overstretch any analogies, but this reminds me a bit of Soren Kierkegaard's doctrine. Purity of heart is to will one thing. J.R.R. Tolkien, incidentally, intended the Lord of the Rings to illustrate this Kierkegaardian doctrine. So maybe, coincidentally, also the idea of Zhou Duanyi. Frodo is able to carry the Ring of Power without being corrupted by it, because he is pure of heart. On politics, Zhou Duanyi favored reform, believing that the Song dynasty suffered from various weaknesses from the beginning that needed to be rectified. Maybe this is to be expected, given his friendship 
with the great reformer Wang Anshi. Like many other members of the Confucian literati, he believed that literature and the arts were important, but they were important as vehicles for ethics, for morality. Ultimately, it's the latter that matters. Also, like many Confucian literati, he believed that the law existed as a necessary corrective against criminal and truly antisocial behavior, but the state ought to use the law only sparingly. Far better to educate the people, to inculcate moral qualities, and what we moderns call high social trust among the people, so that punishments aren't necessary. Zhou Duanyi's status as a major Confucian figure was confirmed by the 13th century, when he became a figure worshipped within Confucian temples. The Waterfall Creek Academy was built in 1220, and persists to this day. His tomb was badly damaged during the Cultural Revolution, but has since been rebuilt with funding from Zhou clan members in Hong Kong. And the Zhou clan temple has been renamed the Hall of Loving a Lotus, after his essay for the love of a lotus. Zhou Duanyi, as well as his descendants Zhou Enlai and Lu Xun, are all worshipped within. All right. On that note, this has been MODG. Thank you for listening.